Uh, it's nice to sing those songs. Christmas carols actually there to be sung any time of the year, but we keep them for just this time of the year, it seems. This morning I'm going to talk about involvement in ministry. I think there is a lot of confusion in our church on some of these issues, so I want to give my two pennies worth for what it's worth and what the Lord has laid upon my heart. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your holy word. You tell us that it's a light shining in darkness, and many of us have experienced that, Lord, in our own lives. But there is a correct way and there is a wrong way to interpret your word. So help us today to listen to the spirit of your word, not just the letter of your word, to take into consideration cultures and historical context and so forth. We thank you, Lord, for raising up an army of people to finish your work. Use each one of us, Lord, every man and woman, every boy and girl, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Joel. I'm going to use this Bible that is in the pew to um, give you the page reference. So you have some little books near the end of your Old Testament. We call them the minor prophets, though they don't necessarily have a minor message. They're just small books. And Joel chapter 2 is um, the passage I want in verse 28 is on page 1416. Joel 2, 28 and 29. I'm not going to preach from this passage. There's another passage that the Lord's impressed upon me. But this is... um, this is something that will be ful- fulfilled at the end of the age. In, my, in this Bible, it says the day of the Lord. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Is the Holy Spirit important? We spent quite a bit of time in our class talking about that this morning. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So at the end of the age, what we call the Messianic age, the age of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will be poured out with signs, wonders. If you go on, carry on reading this passage, amazing things would happen to finish God's work. God's work will finish with greater glory than it began. Jesus is not going to come back secretly with a whimper. It's going to be a mighty proclamation of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ telling every man and woman on planet Earth why they need to team up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need every one of us to do that work. We've had still have a predominance in the Seventh-day Adventist church, at least in the culture that I come from, which is mainly Western Europe, to lay a strong focus 
on the role of the pastor, which usually means male pastor. And if any of you have thought about this or studied this, you might know some of the reasons why that is so. Aren't there texts in Scripture that tell women to be quiet in church? So for whatever reasons, whether it's because we had an Old Testament priesthood, I'm sure there are many reasons why we tend to have a, a large focus on male ministry as pastors. And that's not all bad. It has its place. And I think it, like in the 19th century, when you had uh, famous preachers, and I guess some not so famous ones, that would take the very front page of the newspaper. Imagine that happening today with their sermon. Can you imagine the impact that that would have in a community, in, in society? Um, so pastors had a huge amount of influence um, at, at certain times such as the 19th century. But this text is talking about sons and daughters, talking about females, talking about even children proclaiming the message. I want to read a prayer that has always bothered me. It's in the Jewish prayer book. Don't know if it's in all Jewish prayer books, but it goes something like this. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile, which pretty much applies to most everyone in this room. Does that make you feel good? Do you feel that that prayer is in harmony with Scripture? Now, I'm talking of the totality of Scripture now not just certain portions which might talk of the Levites and, and the male priests. Here's another part of the prayer. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe, for not having made me a slave. Now, I believe the majority of, or a good portion of the early believers were slaves. And Paul even talks of followers of Christ in Caesar's household. So when you and I scratch our heads and try and figure out a challenging book like the book of Romans, that probably was read aloud. They didn't have a copy in their hands. It was read aloud from the front of the church for a primarily a slave audience. And most of those would, were probably Gentiles too. And then finally, blessed are you, Lord God of the universe, for not having made me a woman. How would you feel, ladies, to be in church, in the synagogue, or wherever they read that prayer, and, and it says, Gentile, slave, and then woman? Again, is that, is that in harmony with the totality of Scripture? If I go to Genesis 1, what do I find? Genesis 1 and 2. I find that God made man and woman in His image. 
I see in Genesis 1 and 2, before sin came in, an equality between, it's as though the fullness of the image of God that God could display in humanity couldn't just be in a man and just couldn't be in a woman. It had to be in man and in woman. With this prayer, I Ah, this kind of bothers me, this type of prayer. So, are we trying to just divide people? Are we, what's the point of it? And one person said, this prayer is not to disparage women, but to express gratitude that men are obligated to perform more religious commandments. Well, who am I to advise Jewish people on how they should pray? But I've already shown you in the book of Joel that men and women will be prophesying in the end of the age. So that should show that it's not just going to be men involved in religious commandments, whatever they mean by that. The Scriptures teach, and I've mentioned this a number of times recently, that in Christ we belong to God. We are His children. So, words are used, phrases are used like children, family of God, um, and so forth, showing that we belong to God. But we also belong to one another. And then we use phrases like brothers and sisters in Christ. We belong to one another in such a way as to render of no account the things which normally distinguish us so what would those things be? Well, let's go back to this prayer. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. What is that? That's race. You're either Jewish or you're not Jewish. So the important thing is race. But in Christ, it doesn't matter. Yes, it doesn't remove the distinctions, but it doesn't matter. It's not the important thing. And then if we go to the other part of it, the slave, well, what is that? That's rank, that's status. Slaves usually had very low standing in society. A slave owner in Bible times, so, I'm, so I believe, they could do some very small, make some very small mistakes, something that didn't please the master, and they would either be dumped or they would be killed. And yet here you are as a slave, perhaps for the first time here in the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and somebody tells you, or the implications of what you hear is that your status or your, your rank is not what matters in Christ, right? And then finally, blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe, for not having made me a woman. Equality of the sexes. Distinctions still there in, in, in a number of ways, but equality back to Genesis 1. Do you know the... Do you know the 
struggle, the turmoil that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has gone through and is still going through to nail down some of these principles. When sin came in, the woman was told, you shall cleave to who? Your husband, not as some have said, you shall cleave to man, woman shall cleave to man, but within the context of marriage, you shall cleave to your husband. So there is a judgment there in Genesis chapter 3, after mankind had sinned, after Adam and Eve had sinned, there's a a judgment that comes upon them. I won't take the time to look at those texts because I just don't think we have time, and most of you know those passages from memory. But here's the important thing to me. In the Lord Jesus Christ, curses are reversed. So you can take a passage. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. And I, don't, I can't spend much time on this because there's other things that I, need, I think are that the Lord's impressed upon me more strongly. But I can just throw it in for what it's worth. Ephesians chapter 5, and of course, he spent the first three chapters talking about the gospel, the implications of the gospel. So how does it affect the marital relationship? So here in verse 22, he says, wives, submit to who? Your husbands as to the Lord. And then he goes on to explain that a little bit. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And right to the end of verse, of the, of the chapter, the end of verse 33, you have uh, mainly this explanation on the role of the husband loving the wife, and then this brief statement in a few verses about the wife's submission to the husband. What a lot of people miss is the gospel principle that's in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, I would suggest, is the controlling principle of interpreting that passage. And whenever I uh, sit down with somebody who's planning to get married, and usually in a marital ceremony, I will bring that point out. Yes, I'll try and explain what the wife's role, and I'll try and explain the husband's role, but I will lay the emphasis on verse 21. Now I want to take you to another passage, and it's in Galatians chapter 3. Now, as most of you know, especially if you've read a book like The Great Controversy, studied studied the life of Martin Luther, the reformer, and so on, Um, Galatians, possibly one of the very first books that Paul wrote, um, is, is a book about how to be right with God. So we use phrases like justification by faith, righteousness by faith, to explain in different ways how to be right with God. Now, I want to take you to a verse which I think has a lot of implications. It's in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. 
there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now think of this prayer that I just read to you right at the introduction. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What a powerful verse. And you know, a lot of people don't quite know what to do with that verse. Some say, well, it only applies to people getting saved. Yes, it definitely does apply to that because he's had a lot of discussion on how somebody is saved and how somebody is right with God. Uh, remember from either this Jewish prayer or what you know about Jewish history that there was a really great struggle in the early Christian church. And when we did our series on the book of Acts, we briefly touched upon that in chapter 15. Because you had, earlier, you had somebody like Peter seemingly understanding the biblical principles that God had uh, accepted the Gentiles. How do we know? How do we, how do we know after hundreds and hundreds of years and many, many Bible texts talking about the Jews as, as the ones to be saved, and they're the special people of God, and they're the remnant people of God. So you've got to think of all of that Old Testament uh, material there, and then suddenly someone coming along, either God himself with visions, as with Peter, or, or through the Apostle Paul, saying, no, Gentiles are accepted. So it took visions, it took dreams, it took Paul rebuking Peter to his face. How do we know that they're accepted? Because they've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So for the Jewish leaders, such as Peter and um, James and other Jewish leaders, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out primarily on Jews at Pentecost, was really not totally unexpected. Yes, it was stupendous, it was magnificent, it was mind-blowing, but hey, it fell on the right people. That's the point. And then when Peter is told to go to Cornelius' home, remember that story, we covered that, then suddenly the Holy Spirit is poured out on them as it was poured out on us. So, so therefore, Peter interprets that saying, how could I refuse to baptize them? And of course, to baptize them is bringing them into the family of God. So the point is that they're fully accepted by God, these non-Jews, because the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them. Now, it's one thing saying that, and it's one thing with someone like Peter kind of realizing that, slowly, 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 it's sinking in. But when peer pressure is put on you, as it was put upon Peter, and some very strong, staunch Jews came from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem, and said, no way should you be sitting down and eating with these Gentiles, these non-Jews, because eating together was a symbol also, a cultural symbol, as it still is today in many cultures, of family and oneness. So Peter, at first, before he had this peer pressure, had no problem doing that. Then when the peer pressure was put upon him, then he refused, he cold-shouldered those Gentiles. What, what, a, what a tough lesson there is in that. And it took someone like Paul to rebuke him publicly, because it was a public slight, 
on the Gentiles. It was a wrong way of um, talking about body language, communicating a message. It was the wrong way of um, communicating the, the acceptance of the gospel, that God accepts all people, no matter who they are. And so Paul rebuked him to his face. And I personally believe, it's not reading too much into it, that if Paul had not taken that stand, talk about one person making a difference, if Paul had not taken that stand, we could very well have ended up with two churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Of course, which one would have grown the fastest? Obviously, the Gentile church was growing leaps and bounds, and the, Gentile, and the Jewish church would have eventually been, been eclipsed. But no, God somehow, way, prevented that by raising people up like Paul, by laying a, a specific gospel message, which also primarily came from Paul, and uh, the church was able to maintain its unity. Now, how can we talk about equality and distinctions at the same time? Well, if you're born into a Jewish family, you're going to be Jewish, right? If you're born into a non-Jewish family, you're going to be non-Jewish. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way it is. But where it becomes wrong is when my Jewishness becomes a special badge that I wear. Or my non-Jewishness becomes a special badge that I wear. Think of all the racial problems that we have had and still have within our society. Now, let me ask you, and I'm not going to go into what they are because that's, that's a sermon in itself, but should those things affect God's church? Should they be something, for example, that separates us? Something that divides us? Clearly, the gospel says no. This text in Galatians 3.28 says no to that. Likewise, if you're a slave, does the Bible condemn slavery? I encourage you to study that. It's a very, very, very interesting study. The Bible does not condemn slavery. So it wasn't too many years ago in places like England and in, in this country where you would have Christian slave owners who would know all those texts in the Bible to back up slavery. Now, in our culture today, if you make a slave of someone, you'd probably spend the rest of your life in prison. It's such, such a no-no. Slavery is still going on, even in this nation and in many nations throughout the world. But is slavery something that we should encourage in the church? Yes or no? No, you're quite clear about that. Well, what about this male and female functioning in the church too. In ancient times, women were usually despised, exploited, ill-treated. The distinction is still there. If you're a female, then rejoice that you're a female. If you're a male, 
rejoice that you're a male. But when it comes to the church, we don't want gender any more than we want race or status or rank to divide us. We don't want to talk down to one another because we feel we have some edge because of race, gender, or whatever. These distinctions, though they are there, should not matter to us as far as functioning and doing the work of the Lord in His church. Now, though I can't necessarily take the time to prove this, all of this emerges out of the one concept of what it means to be justified by faith, or as we were talking about in our class this morning, we didn't use that phrase, we talked about what it means to be in Christ, our union with Christ. So, you can be the so-called wrong race, the wrong skin color, even though we know there is no right and wrong here, but the way it plays out in society and even in churches, this is what happens. So you can have all the wrong things, be the wrong gender, and if we're not careful, it can divide if we don't understand and grasp these biblical principles. Okay, Pastor, well, what do we do with statements like 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, it's kind of interesting that when I took you through chapter 12 and 13, we never actually got to chapter 14. And if some of you ask me, well, why don't, didn't we get to chapter 14? I kind of thought you'd had enough, and some of you expressed that you'd had enough on spiritual gifts discussion for a while. <clears throat> So in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, for example, and this is not the only place, we have similar text in Timothy, I believe it is. Um, let's pick it up in verse 33. God is not a God of, of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but they must be in submission as the law says. They want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. It is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. That's page 1789, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. How are we supposed to interpret texts like that? Well, it's clear. Women are to be quiet, which implies that men are not to be quiet in church, or at least some could see it that way. And if we didn't take into account the context of the book, maybe the, the time and the historical context as well, the cultural context, if we ignored those things, then surely the Seventh-day Adventist church is going to teach, because the Word of God says it, that women should be silent in the church. And yet we've never done that. And I guess it's pretty hard when you have someone like Ellen White around to do that, right? 
But there are some that say, because it says that women should be silent in the church, Ellen White's ministry is null and void. Right there. And by the way, this is not the only passage, as I said, that suggests that women should be silent in the church. There are other passages that we could look at if we had more time. So why hasn't the Seventh-day Adventist church interpreted this in a more literal, literalistic way? Because we feel that there's a better way of interpreting Scripture. And I know that, as I understand it, the church is still evolving, if I can use that word, in its understanding of, of how to interpret Scripture. Uh, never ever ceased to amaze me how I could go to a general conference session and hear two men, maybe it would have been different if I heard a man and a woman, I don't know, but two men using the same Bible text drawing different conclusions before the world church. Showed me that obviously the issue is how we interpret the Word of God. That's the real issue trying to get into, and, and, I, and I admit it's not always easy. I'm not trying to give any simplistic answers, uh, comments this morning. I, I, I know myself how sometimes I struggle as a pastor to understand certain things within a context that I may not fully understand what was really going on in, in that passage. What I do believe is happening here in a text like this one in Corinthians is that um, women were obviously uh, speaking out of turn. So I don't believe at all, because there is a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that says it's okay for women to prophesy, which is the equivalent of preaching in those times. So one part of the book seems to indicate women should be speaking in church, and then another part of the book seems to indicate, no, they should be silent and they should ask their husbands. So isn't that, isn't that a total contradiction? No, it's not. If you deal with looking for the principles of Scripture, what is the principle? Well, one of the principles is to have worship in a, in a decent, orderly way. So it's very clear when we went through uh, 1 Corinthians 12, perhaps that was the place for it. And certainly if we had got into chapter 14, we would have seen Paul uh, trying to explain a little bit more about these spiritual gifts and say, okay, if, if 10 of you are making this up now, if 10 of you are prophesying and 10 of you are speaking in tongues and you're all doing it at the same time, whoa, it's chaos. That obviously was what was happening. And so Paul would try and look for some principles to stop that chaos and bring some, some order into the worship service. What I believe is what I've preached here for a number of months, if not longer, is that God is the one who does the saving. In our class this morning, uh, one of our members said, well, God is even the one that brings us to repentance. It's all the work of God. He gives us this desire in our heart Maybe it starts with being uh, dissatisfied with our condition. Maybe it's just so, it starts with something like, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? We actually had one young man write that down on, 
on one of those cards that we pass out. What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? By the way, I want to talk with that young guy. <laughs> so if those of you know who I'm talking about, then, then uh, try and connect me, connect me up with him. These are the kind of questions that I asked as a teenager. I'd see people just dead before my eyes, young people. People had their whole life to live, and then suddenly they're gone. Understood nothing about death, understood nothing about life after death. Didn't understand the Bible, had more questions than answers. So I think a lot of us go through that, but all of that can be the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not saved when we ask those questions, what's the meaning of life? But a process has started. Or just this, why do I always sin? Why is there so much evil in me? Haven't all of us done something that we're thoroughly ashamed of? That if we could just turn back the clock, we would? All of that can be the work of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, they had the sacrificial system. When they knew that they had sinned and they needed to make atonement for that, then they would transfer their sins symbolically onto the animal. The animal would be killed. Its blood would be shed. Of course, all pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who died so that our sins can be forgiven and we can live with him for eternity. So whether it's the meaning of life, whether it's, it's not happy with your sinful condition, whatever it is, all of this is meant, or even just looking into the law of God, the Ten Commandments, all of it is meant to move us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can set us right with God. However, once we're saved, once we are set right with God, it's not like God has finished His work. You can look at, you can look at salvation not just as an event at one point in time, but you can also look on it as a process so that He's working within us. So, one of the very first things He does instantaneously is place His Holy Spirit within us, give us the gifts that he, what, no sooner does God save us in the mind of God, He doesn't just know who needs to get saved, but He also know, need, knows who can work for Him, who can be given gifts for Him, who can build up His kingdom, who can build up His church family. All of that is part of the salvation process of being in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if God gives a man, a man or a boy, the gift of teaching, what should the boy or man do? If God gives the same gift to a girl or a woman, what should the girl or woman do? Teach. And I've told some of you in the past that meeting people in their 70s who have never, ever preached in their lives, suddenly discovering, and probably being a bit scary, that they may possibly have the gift of preaching. Now, you never know until you do it. So we always have to throw that in with spiritual gifts. It's not just a matter of having a survey as helpful as they can be or talking with somebody. You've actually got to do it and find out whether God has actually given you this gift or not. But the boy, the man, the girl, the woman, if they have the gift, they should be exercising that, okay? Most of us would agree with that. Not everybody. There are some that would say God will never give the gift of teaching to a woman. 
and he will never give the gift of preaching. I would say the history of Christianity denies that. The Word of God denies that. So I'm working from the premise, which is what the Seventh-day Adventist believes and teaches, that God gives his gifts irrespective of race, status, or gender. That's the basic principle, the basic point. Now you have to build out from there. So if that's the case, and God gives his gift as he sees fit, then somebody's got to recognize where those gifts are. Usually, if I understand the Bible and Ellen White correctly, that should be the pastor and the leaders of the church, usually what we call the elders of the church. And somebody's got to recognize those gifts, affirm those gifts. I, I believe we all need to do that. I don't believe it's just a, a handful of people that should do that. We should all affirm that person if they have that gift, encourage them to use it in service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and I was sharing this with some of you recently. Let's say Jake and Cliff, and I'm not just picking on Cliff and Jake, but there might be a reason why I say this. Let's say Jake, Cliff, and we'll throw Evelyn in there. She, she'll listen to me now, Evelyn. Did we mention your card that you have to fill in? We have a card that Evelyn, she, she picks these very nice cards for you to fill in for um, Carol's daughter, right? Yeah, out in the foyer, so don't forget that. But let's say Jake, Cliff, and, and Evelyn, the Lord laid upon their heart to start a homeless ministry, right? So there's certain gifts that are needed to, to, to do a ministry like that, and, and hopefully these three people have those gifts. Now, it wouldn't be a strange thing. Maybe it would be a bit strange within our context, but it shouldn't be a strange thing for the church to set those people aside and affirm them in ministry. And that's what ordination means. Ordination is setting those individuals aside for a specific ministry and basically giving them the stamp of approval. So if you read what Ellen White says about, about Paul, and I believe it was Barnabas that was sent out by the local church, that is the way she talks about, um, probably in Acts of the Apostles, that is the way she talks about ordination. She doesn't talk about it in the context of like a Catholic, Catholic way of talking about these things where grace is transferred from one higher person, be it the pope, the bishop, or whoever, to the priest or, or the, the parishioner. The scriptures don't talk of a hierarchy. It's not there. It's not there in Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve. It's not there throughout all of Scripture. Yes, there were certain people at certain times, like the Levites, that were to do a specific work. But in these last days, the work is so great that we are all called by God to do service for Him. And a lot of our understanding of forms of that service, such as the role of the pastor, the role of the elders, or whatever it might be, a lot of this we have borrowed from other denominations. 
and it has caused a whole lot of problems in our church. And unfortunately, it has put some people up on a pedestal, and it's, it's just not a biblical way of doing things in the church. So let's make sure that when we go to Scripture, that we look for the meaning of the text. Admittedly, that's a little bit of a challenge. Uh, ladies, I don't see too many of you covering your heads this morning. Why is that? When the scriptures say so clearly that you should. Where do I go to to show that we shouldn't have slavery in scripture? Where do I go to in scripture to show we should all be vegetarians? Where do I go to? See, what's happening in the Seventh-day Adventist church when you kind of distill all of this discussion is we're always back to Genesis 1 and 2 before sin came in. And I think that is providential because many denominations do not interpret Scripture that way. So we're going back and we say that there are principles there in the early part of Scripture in Genesis 1 and 2 that go right across the board. And even if you have in the Old Testament where, where the priests were very dominant in God's plan of salvation, you can still see this equality of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, if you don't believe that, then I have, we've actually tried to uh, send an article to those of you that have email, and unfortunately, that didn't come through as clearly as, as we would have wished. Um, but if you read that article, or if you need a copy of that article, uh, I'm, I'm happy to get that into your hands. But understand that the Seventh-day Adventist church, at this point in time, even though we're still struggling with some of these challenges of who should be involved in ministry, that the church has come to a position quite a few years ago, over 30 years ago, that as far as certain positions in the church, such as elders, deacons, and deaconesses, and so on, that it is appropriate to have all genders involved in this, to have ordination for these. This is the position of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So if we see that differently, as I know that some of us do, then, then we need to read the Adventist literature, and we need to understand how they came to interpret Scripture in, in a certain way. If we understand the correct way of interpreting, what I believe is the correct way of interpreting Scripture, we will not get sidetracked with local cultural situations such as women being silent in church or women covering their head or whatever. We will interpret Scripture according to principle, according to context. Take a text out of context, it is said, and what you have is a pretext. And there's a lot of that done within Christianity, and it just causes confusion. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit, that He doesn't exalt some people and keep others down.
but that each one of us is made in your image. Each one of us has the opportunity of salvation. We thank you and we praise you for that this morning. If there are some people here, Lord, that are not saved, I pray that they will cast themselves on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never reject them. And Lord, those of us that are saved here today, then we are gifted by you. We thank you and we praise you for that. Take away our fears, Lord. Help us to approach Scripture with excitement. May it always be fresh for us. And help us to interpret it according to the way it should be interpreted. Make us, uh, put us in tune with the Holy Spirit. Help us to learn from one another. And also learn from... Um, leadership and scholarship within the Seventh-day Adventist Church as well as the Christian world. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.